Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. Welcome back to Design Huddle. Design Huddle podcast if you're new. Each week, we step inside the minds of some of the most creative people on the planet from a variety of design disciplines. We explore how design impacts our everyday lives and how we can all work to design a better future. Today, we have an awesome, awesome guest, uh, James Somerville. James is the founder and chief designer of Known Unknown, a global design company. Um, James is a brand designer and a marketing aficionado. Uh, One of the coolest parts of his resume is he was a former VP of global design for the Coca-Cola company. So we're definitely gonna have to ask him some questions about that experience. He's spoken at over 200 events in 30 countries about all the topics that Design Huddle cares about, designing, brand strategy, entrepreneurship, and company culture. Um, At Coca-Cola, James led design thinking, brand design, execution for 40 identities, designed the Coca-Cola One brand strategy, and implemented 200-plus markets and led partnerships with Disney, Marvel, Google, and Star Wars. Wow, that's pretty impressive. All right, let's dive into it. Mustafa, what questions do you have for James? And James, welcome to the Design Huddle yes, I... podcast. Ryan, thank you. Thank you for the introduction. And uh, great to be with you guys. Over to yeah, you, no, just, just say, uh, welcome, welcome, James. Uh, just to kick it off, I mean, uh, could you give us an introduction and how you got into design? Like, just sort of like how you got into the career, your, your path, education, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, if I go all the way back, I mean, may, maybe many designers have got a similar path. Uh, I wasn't the most academic. Uh, I'm an introvert. So school didn't really work for me, to be honest. Um, but what I, I realized I, I could do is uh, make connections, visual connections. I guess, draw patterns in my head, doodle all day. Um, and then coming out of school, um, I went to a, a graphic design course at my local college. And I was a street artist. I used to chalk on the pavements, age 16 to 19. And so, that early life, that kind of late teenager, young adult, was uh, me trying to find my way in the in the in what appeared didn't appear to be a career at that point. It was just a kind of a something that I felt comfortable in. So, you know, those were the early steps of uh, me at least getting a taste of what graphic design we would call it back then, but uh, design as a as a whole would look like. So, just interesting about the street art. Was that graffiti or was that just like chalk pavement, like a Mary Poppins style? Chalk yeah, almost a little bit more Mary Poppins. So <laughs> we, we, we used to draw, uh, if I'm honest, we'd draw cartoon characters. Uh, uh, Disney, back in those days, we were drawing Smurfs, if you remember those. And, yep. you know, the psychology was, one, it's pretty easy. Two, um, you know, colourful, bright. Uh, and three, you know, I don't think we thought about this at the time, but the kids loved it. And if the kids loved it, they'd drag their parents over. And then all of a sudden, you know, we might get through a few coins thrown in our tin. So, you know, it was marketing to the youth, um, but we didn't see it like that at that time. But, um, you know, after three years of chalking on the streets, I got to like 18 and I had no fingerprints. And to be honest, I've often thought there's a lot you could do age 18 with no fingerprints, but I I was just getting a little cold by then in the UK. So we came indoors and started an agency. (laughs) So, So yeah. 
What was the agency focused? <laughs> was it talking? Was it still like artwork? Or? That's like the best transition yeah. ever. I was, you know, <laughs> I went from side <laughs> writing with sidewalk chalk to starting an agency. That's like the dream for every designer. They're like, you know what? I'm going to go inside and start something great. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about how you jumped into the agency. And I'd love to hear about who your first, first customer was. Yeah, no. Um, Let's talk about our first studio. So we were scratching our head. We had no money. We went to see, I was with my, my uh, art college friend, who soon to be my business partner, Simon. And so we went to the banks. They said no. We were, we were dressed like, you know, uh, gothic punks or whatever. So no wonder they said no. And so eventually uh, we found uh, a charity, the Prince's Trust in the UK. So they, oh, yeah, yeah. they gave us £2,000 um, in 1986. That was our startup. And we went and bought an Apple Macintosh. We didn't know what one was, but we found it and we bought one. And, um, and then we needed a studio. And my grandmother said, well, guys, if you paint uh, the top floor of my small terrace house in Yorkshire, you can use that. So we did that. We painted it and we called the agency Attic. And um, nice. so we were in my grandmother's house for the first six months up those windy stairs. And, uh, but that was the birth of our... You know, piecing that together, £2,000 from a charity, buying an Apple Mac, not really knowing what to do with it, um, and, and my, my grandmother making tea all day and buns in her attic bedroom. So it was a great start. Just to give context to our international users, in the UK, in the 80s and 90s in particular, you'd have uh, the Prince's Trust, which was, uh, I think, headed up by, well, I think he's the patron of uh, Prince Charles, uh, if you might remember. Um, or maybe it was actually his dad. Uh, they'd get grants and donations, in particular from the lottery now these days, where they will fund youth projects or other kind of initiatives to help regenerate areas. Because so, I, I remember going through Prince's Trust as well when we set up a youth magazine back in East London. Uh, so when you said the Prince's Trust, I was like, yeah, that, that was a great incubator for um, uh, young ideas. Uh, so did you have to pay that back or was that just a grant, like a business grant? It was a business grant at the time. Um... I'm lucky enough today to be connected to the Prince's Trust as an alumni and a product of the trust, but also as yeah. a patron. So, you know, we, we now spend time with the next generation of youngsters who are coming through, but they've helped over a million young people in yeah. 40 years. So I'm, I'm just one of those and it's been a fantastic journey. But, uh, you know, I think what, what the Prince's Trust gave Simon and I, the 2000 pounds is important to any young person at the time, it felt like a lot of money, but they gave us confidence. You know, when the when the when the bank said no, they said yes, and so that that was possibly more valuable to us at the time. We didn't realise it than than um, sure we could go out and buy some some equipment, but uh, but it actually really kind of like you know projected us on our way. We just felt we were walking taller. We felt good, and someone had supported us, so we were on our way. Yeah, I mean, that's quite common in the UK, again, like Ryan, just to give you context, is we don't really have VC money, but there was a period of time when you could get an education grant that you could survive on. For your, it, it was kind of like a scholarship, but for people from low-income families, and that was quite common until like 1997, I think, it or 98, it was when most, most of those things were killed, and slowly that's all being clawed back, which is a shame, because my, I myself is like a Prince's Trust uh, um, kid, I suppose, and yeah, no, those, I feel those opportunities are kind of dying away. Was the grant targeted towards like creative professionals or could it have been like any like industry? Any. And you could be a hairdresser, you, you could be you could be a fitness coach. They've covered they cover every discipline. The, the theory is, you know, disadvantaged young people who have got maybe a, a, a passion or a or a, a you know, a vision for a for a young for a business, 
um, and they're there to help and all the way through to today. So, you know, we, we chose the creative kind of field because that's what we knew from art school and pavement art, but, um, but it could be anything. And uh, I've met many, many trust success stories from all disciplines. They're all grown up businesses now, some have exited and so on. So. Uh, it's a, uh, it's quite, it's quite a, a book when you sit back and read all those stories. Yeah, that's awesome. I, d I did not know that. So the context is definitely super helpful. It's a shame that the program like ended or it's like being, I guess, sunset. I think it still exists, but it's a lot of stuff is cut back. It's like we've got in the UK, we've got a serious problem with like, uh, those funding is like, I mean, Prince Trust still exists, right? But is it most yeah, volunteer? Oh, it still exists. Yeah, Great. it just crossed its Awesome. Year and it's 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 thriving it moves now into um, mentorship education you can find you know you can find if you're a young business it's not all about cutting a check it's about training uh, you know bringing real life skills to young people some of it still they still have a business program but it's a much broader um, kind of suite of, uh, of offerings now to young people which is great because not everybody wants to start a business yeah so from going from Attic, um, who was your first client? I'm just curious. What was the first? Um, we had a angel? we had a meeting in the local town. I'm from Huddersfield, Yorkshire town, a mill town in, in the north of England. Um, first of all, we needed a business card, so we started to draw Attic. Uh, you know, our logo. We needed a logo, right? Because everybody, it's <laughs> <laughs> first thing. Um, and we couldn't quite get the C right. I was drawing around cups and trying to get the C, and you know, it was a bit of a disaster. So we decided to change the C to a K. Um, knowing we could draw that with a ruler. Um, and so we had our logo, we had our kind of first uh, business card and a leaflet and we went to see a, what we'd call almost like a secondhand dress uh, agency, like a secondhand clothes store, um, Oxfam of the day, but it was an independent and they, did, they needed a flyer, they needed something to give out, you know, kind of like it's a, a used clothing and quite honestly that's what we wore back then. So uh, we were customers as well as they were clients. and. For us, that was just a, that's very memorable to me because we were scrambling to draw a logo. You know, I remember calling uh, and, uh, and saying, you know, it's going to cost all together, including the printing, you know, 125 pounds for the whole thing. Uh, and I was nervous, so nervous about telling him. And he, he was fine, you're the owner. And, um, and that was it. That was, that was our first client, effectively. Uh -huh. And did you just move on for local businesses there? I mean, how did you actually grow the business? We grew the business over, so the, the next five years we were growing very, very nicely in, in Yorkshire and Huddersfield, our clients across the, the middle, if you like, or the, or the north of England. But I think we always had our, our eye on something more kind of like, more youthful, more, more kind of like progressive. Uh, and by which time, if you, if you recall, we invested in Apple actually before many, many other more professional and uh, um, you know, established agencies because nobody really knew if it was a fad. Yeah. You know, five years in, we were on fifth or sixth generation max by then. So we were very well kitted out. Um, we decided to produce our own exploratory print books called Noise. And it was an idea to invite designers, graphic designers, um, you know, to, to just express themselves on a, on a, on a page because everything was printed by then. I'm, I'm around about 92. Yeah. Um, but we wanted to put things down on paper to go down to London, to knock on the door of an MTV or a PlayStation, uh, a music record label, effectively a cooler brand. Um, but our portfolio in the North wasn't quite cutting it. So we created this make-believe book 
called Noise, which was all about pushing Photoshop, pushing some of the some of the technology that was coming through, uh, illustration, typography, and by mashing together maybe 15 or 20 designers, it just became this explosive kind of mini catalogue of designs. And when we knocked on the doors of, you know, the very progressive brands like an MTV, they just felt that's what we did. You know, that was our portfolio and our, and our sort of glorified business card. So we started picking work up from those guys on, the re on a regular basis. And then that expanded us to London. Um, and we started changing the direction of our agency to be a little bit more targeted towards these more youthful, progressive, visually progressive brands. Yeah. What do you think your big break I mean, was from the agency perspective? Like, is there any client or like moment when you're like, hey, I think we're on to something, like we should go bigger? Yes, yeah, so for, we did that for London. We'd, we'd, we'd spend like four days in London, go a bunch of meetings, and then we'd come home and do the work in Yorkshire. Once we'd established our small office in London around 95, we thought, you know, we're in a meeting with a PlayStation or, or a, a gaming company or a music company, and they're saying, hey, why don't you speak to our guys in New York? You know, like, go see MTV in New York. And we're like, oh, wow, okay. This, this feels like a Beatles moment. <laughs> um, and, and by the way, my uncle was the press officer of the Beatles, so I had all those stories <laughs> of how the brand developed for those young men back then. I wasn't alive for much of it, but um, for me, it was like an opportunity and, and Simon and our team to think, well, if we can do it here in London, why don't we? And we're have, it's a perfect intro. They're calling their colleagues at MTV uh, in, in, the, in the Viacom building in Times Square and saying, you've got to speak to Attic. So we, instead of catching the train to London, we were flying to New York for a week. And we did the same thing. We were presenting our work through these visual books. Uh, they got a little bit more adventurous. Uh, more designers helped us piece them together. And, uh, and the likes of, you know, headquarters of MTV and, and VH1 and, and then more record companies in, in New York and ad agencies were calling us. So the turning point for us was we were literally in a meeting with MTV. They opened a page in our book and it was all Photoshop. It was all layered. You can imagine this is around 96, 97, heavy layers, very complex in that, in that sense. And they said, oh, wow, we love this page. It was like noise three by then. Is this a still image from a motion graphics package? We assume it is. And me and my, my colleague at the time, Will, looked at each other and just said, sure, yeah, definitely. You know, yeah. And she said, great. Can you get your producer to call me tomorrow? We'd like you to rebrand uh, the motion graphics for MTV News. Like, we had no idea what a, a producer was. Uh, we'd never made anything move in that sense. So for us, that was a turning point. Sorry, that was a call coming in. We, we went from a print shop and a print graphic design studio to all of a sudden, overnight, at MTV, we were giving a brief to rebrand and create a motion package for MTV News. So... For us, that was definitely a turning point in our, in our sort of agency. Uh, and the way we thought as well, we came out of the box of just thinking print, thought, you know, designers, you know, we have the ability now and technology was emerging. Sure, we can jump across to another canvas. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, did you have to pinch yourselves like these boys from Yorkshire in Times Square? 
like I know there's some there's like in the UK again some context there's kind of like a psychological hierarchy of like London being or the southeast being the epicenter of the UK and well the design agencies seem to uh, all the big businesses seem to congregate like was there did you ever have that feeling and then you've got obviously the class as well working class kids working from the street did that ever really affect you in any particular way when you or did you not even think you thought beyond that I think if uh, if I go back to those uh train or driving down to London on a recce and it was Simon my partner who's a real um, you know he, he's, a, he's a working class northern guy at the point we were doing that what's really interesting is it was just after a recession around about 93 yeah. and that was almost the death of the yuppie it was like you know this 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 the 80s success that everybody was experiencing both sides of the Atlantic it just kind of fell down so when you have a northern agency coming into London and saying and they say, do you want to do lunch? And he's saying, no, we're not doing lunch because you'll end up paying for it and we need to get back up north and do this work. Actually, if I'm honest, it was, a, it was very refreshing at the time in London for, for, for many organizations to hear that. So rather than it being like a second division town or you know, like a below the London halo, it actually felt like, wow, it's good to work with these guys because you know, we're going to get the job done. There's going to be no wastage, if you like, or time wastage or, or spending money in other areas. And I think just that kind of like, you know, we're, we're outsiders. We're not from London. So, you know, I think that at the time, maybe people were looking for new ways to work. Yeah. And, and by luck or by, by just being our, ourselves and being authentic and real, we, we, we were, it, it played in our favor, I, I would say. So I'm curious about, say, like, how you scaled your business as well, because it's obviously, like, in retrospect, you understand, like, how management and, like, you're designing design and then you're actually designing careers and then designing a business. But if you don't actually have someone to sit there and like, explain all those things out to you, I mean, how did you go about, um, first as a designer, being able to allow other designers to create for you and, like, giving away that freedom and then managing that? I mean, was that like a peaceful transition or was that kind of uh, trial and error? There was definitely a lot of trial and error. We had a couple of like, quote, non-exec directors who came in and kind of, you know, sat around for half a day and went. But I mean, really, it was more about, you know, there was a, there was a level of rinse and repeat. So if it worked in London, we'd build a little studio there. We'd get up to 10, 15, 20 people. We'd replicate that in New York, same model. It had to stand on its own feet. It would not be funded by London or by our Yorkshire uh, office in Huddersfield. Then we did the same in San Francisco. Then we did the same in Sydney in Australia. Then we did the same in LA. So each time there was a level of take what we just did, improve that. What could we do at the next city? By the way, you know, we were fairly uh, primitive in terms of let's go to a, a, a place that feels cool, speaks English, nice weather. You know, so like we, there wasn't much strategic thinking going on there. But in terms of the operational side and looking at the potential pool of clients, I think we threw the dart at some really interesting cities um, and really just tried to sort of like uh, build on what we'd already done in the previous office or previous offices, studios, and see, and then, and then once that was, you know, we, at one point we were up to like maybe 250 employees and we turned around and we thought, wow, and, and we're still an independent, independent. That was the risk. We were project based. Yeah. We had zero retainers and we were not part of a, of a, of a, of a you know, strong arm of a network. We were, we were really uh, project to project. So 
there was a huge risk uh, attached to that that eventually you know hit us hard but you know in the growing phase of that i think we were we were we were careful we were strategic but there was no there was no five year plan uh, it it tended to be m- what was m- the culture like during its peak Culturally for us, we would try and get all our officers, I want to say all, all our members of our teams together annually, you know, wherever that could be. And the first one we held was in Stratford in England. <laughs> of course, you know, famous for Shakespeare and everything else. But so we have people flying in from New York, San Francisco, down from Huddersfield, up from London. And we all just came together in this kind of crazy historical town, beautiful town. And of course, like that was for the for the for our friends overseas, it was pretty mind blowing for us. It was super educational and we just like any young organization had a blast. So from that point on, we called it a Stratford do. So we've had Stratford do's in California, uh, in Australia, in upstate New York. And we always kind of referred to it as our Stratford event. Um, but bringing people together, I mean, we talk about that today, obviously, post-COVID, but we found that was the best way. It was expensive. It was, it was costly because we weren't working. Uh, but the, but the, uh, the, the return on that investment in terms of culture, being part of a growing kind of like, you know, a family, an agency, feeling connected, um, was huge returns. So we, we invested in that and uh, we know organizations do that today, but the larger you get, the more difficult it becomes to kind of like make that happen. But for us, it was, uh, and that's where we ideated over our next book. You know, our next, you know, went from 50 pages to the next one was 200 pages to 500 pages. So the noise book of bringing designers from around the world still was still happening. So we were still publishing um, uh, our, our sort of kind of you know self-published uh, uh, experimental books as well. Yeah, I mean this is this is Just I mean that. on paper this is like a textbook design career, right? Like you start with sidewalk chalk, you then start an agency in your in your grandma's house, and then you launch a global agency that's successful in multiple cities. Like this is <laughs> it's a very awesome it's a very awesome uh, it's very inspirational of like how you were able to build and how you were able to grow and get people excited about your overarching mission. I guess I'm curious now if we can jump to the like corporate world. Um, did you get approached by Coca-Cola? How did you transition from this agency world and decide to say, hey, I want to start a career in a more structured environment like a Coca-Cola? And I'd also love to hear like at the time of when you joined Coca-Cola, like what were their biggest challenges? Definitely. It's a, it's a, so, so, Prior to Coke, uh, so Attic had been acquired uh, by Dentsu. So we were part of then around uh, 97. Uh, I think we caught, uh, uh, no, 97, 2007. 2007, we joined the Dentsu network, uh, which is pretty good timing because it got a little sticky in 2008 and 9, as we all will remember. Yeah. But for me, you know, we spent, a bunch, we spent four years at Dentsu. And then, and then effectively, my... The, the mission of Attic had been completed. We could, we could tick every box uh, and we felt great about that. Uh, Coca-Cola were a client then. So we were working for Coca-Cola doing some brand identity. When I, when I drew a line under the Attic story and I shook hands with the team at Dentsu, um, Coke placed a call and said, hey, James, you know, you know us from the outside. You've been working with us now for a few years. Um, how do you fancy leading uh, global design, and, and this was uh, my, my 
soon to be boss, Wendy Clark. She headed up the global uh, uh, Coca-Cola portfolio and sparkling beverages. So for me, you know, thinking about that, I've come through a very small, growing entrepreneurial uh, kind of, uh, you know, journey, joining a huge monster like, uh, you know, uh, agency as Dentsu, and it just felt like the next natural kind of stage and, and, a, and, a, and a stage that I was, like anybody, very nervous. What could I bring? Coca-Cola in its previous 125 years has done everything in marketing and design. Uh, it's on every, every other street corner, every mom and pop. So there's nothing this company has not done. So definitely, you know, standing on the shoulder of giants. But what I realized very quickly was it was also an organization that had a tendency to do the same thing. Every FIFA World Cup, there'd be a, you know, the same program. Yeah. Every holiday, Santa Claus, every, you know, kind of Olympics, the same program. So for me, what I tried to bring, those are the, what I'd say the what's. Um, I tried to bring the how's. How are we going to do this? How do we work? So a, a spirit of entrepreneurship, an outsider, even though it's David and Goliath, can bring a way of thinking that to a huge corporate uh, entity, and not used to thinking in that way of, you know, buzzwords of today, agile, curious, design thinking, you know, like the things that we do as designers and, and we do that intuitively, we're not being taught in, the, in, the, in this large organization. So I kind of felt there was an opportunity there to bring something that maybe in its 125 years, you know, was not, was not that common. I'd like to think that Coca-Cola was design thinking, you know, in 1886, that's what I think, but, but as a practice. Um, so, you know, you can always look at yourself and think, yes, I could, I could have, you know, imposter syndrome here, or I could try and bring something that maybe, you know, can move the needle and move the, move the stock price, but, but move the organization forward and the culture forward as well. What would you say you found when you first got there, like things that you thought were missing or things that they, that they maybe Coca-Cola had lost its way in a sort of a more creative aspect? Is there anything I used to... Yeah, I, well, so from Attic, I must have pitched to a thousand prospect companies. I mean, maybe a hundred a year, maybe, you know, like, uh, you know, so you get used to pitching to clients, you get used to your kind of, you know, sales approach and call it what you want, but you're always on the, on the hunt for something. And then I did five years at Coca-Cola uh, on the other side of the table. And I, I, I refer to myself as poacher turned gamekeeper. And I must have seen a thousand agencies come in and, and pitch to Coke because who wouldn't want a little piece of Coca-Cola's business? So for me, that was a very educational. And I, I realized that the agencies coming in, the same agencies, you know, the same agency model, uh, the same way of working as I was doing in 1986 when I started at it, because that model is tried and tested probably from the 50s or, you know, yeah. kind of. So it works, you know, those, those disciplines, those departments, the way, the way agencies pitch. And I've kind of, I felt there was an opportunity to look for a new way of working with creative partners. And, and going back to our noise books, I wanted to work directly with talent. I wanted to find a typographer. She's working from Starbucks in Savannah, but she's an amazing typographer, an illustrator in, in, in Kosovo. Uh, a, a 2D art worker in Sao Paulo working in his bedroom. I wanted to embrace that community and not just call a global network. Who'll find that, who'll find that freelancer, 
but that's going to take four weeks and it's going to feel very slow. I wanted to call them direct. So we implemented a model of direct to talent. I think some of my success stories at Coke will not be seen on a can. Um, I've done some decent cans, but mm. it's the way we did it and how we changed the way of working. So, you know, on, on leaving Coke now, we, they, they can work directly with talent and it's all to do with, you know, kind of, you know, contracts and insurances and, you know, kind of things like that. But if you can navigate those waters and for us, that allowed us to move quicker, discover talent, be a little bit more hands on Coca-Cola yeah. design, a little bit more hands on then not relying solely on, on external partners. So you can get your hands dirty and feel part of the process and altogether feels more collaborative, uh, less, less we're on this side of the room and our agencies are on that side of the room. Actually, let's all get into the middle of the room and bring some talent in there as well that we can all try and solve. So that type of way of working was really an enjoyable part of changing that at, uh, at Coca-Cola. I'm just interested, like, I don't, know, I don't know if I'm being too poetic in this, but it does feel like every example you're given from this, the Stratford one, it does feel very Prince's Trust-esque. Like you find someone, someone who's talented has been has has a bit of belief or faith behind them, and they're given the opportunity. Or like the Stratford, you're actually going and again, it's building that those relationships, which you will never see it written down. Of I managed to improve the money by X, but everybody knows that those things are really um, impactful, like long term. It's only maybe twenty years later you find out. Do you think that? has been the thing that's influenced you repeatedly or am I just reading way too much into it? No, I, th I think uh, you've hit on something really close to my heart really as well as my, my head. It's, you know, when I have, I've had the pleasure of meeting His Royal Highness several times and at one point I asked, who was there at the beginning of the Prince's Trust? And he said, me and a drum. <laughs> Nobody, that's like the, one of the best lines ever. I mean, this guy, is, if he wasn't in the role, I mean, he's a leader. He's, he, you know, I think he gave his first sustainability talk in the early 70s. He, he has a vision that, uh, and the Prince's Trust has played out. So from him banging on that drum, um, slowly played out. And then when I think about Attic or even working at Coca-Cola, if you can hit that drum, if you can kind of, you know, get other people to walk to the same drumbeat or dance to the same drumbeat, then all of a sudden then that multiplied effect can be very powerful. And so I do think, you know, when I look back, um, you know, that there is, there is a, you do feel alone in the very beginning. You do feel kind of like, you know, you're in the temple, Coca-Cola, and I'm walking through the front door on my first day. I, I'm, I'm actually thinking, what, what could I, what, what's my drumbeat here? How would I even start something that other people might think is attractive in the sense of, I like what you're doing, keep doing it, I'll support it. And, and over time, you know, if that, if, if that works out, and if, that, if that's a great idea in the beginning, of course, you can find ways to kind of grow that. So it's super interesting you picked up on that because uh, not many people do, Mustafa, but I, I've always thought that from, uh, from the very beginning of the Prince's Trust. It's a great way of thinking, courtesy of uh, His Royal Highness. Absolutely. No, uh, sorry, Ryan, I'm just going to, I've got like a, a, a roll of questions in my head, so you better interrupt me quick. Uh, no, just one last thing. In terms of the applied activities that you used to do at Coca-Cola, you know, like, um, the big thing, and especially in Silicon Valley and, and, and tech in general, is actually having the frameworks of activity, so the design sprint model, where day one you do this, day two you do this. Was Did you formalize like the specific activities that you would do with the creative folks you might find in Kosovo or like South America, or did you just invite them in and give them a design brief? Like, What was the applied day-to-day -day things that you would do to incubate the, the sort of talent? 
Yeah, there, there was a combination of, um, of course, the book had been written in design thinking and, you know, can, Tim Brown and, and, and friends at IDEO had sort of published that. So it was already out there. There's nothing new. But in terms of actually penetrating um, large organizations, it feels like one brick at a time. So when I say a brick, I, would, I refer to one business unit at a time. So we might fly down to, you know, a Latin American market or, or, or over to uh, some of our uh, African business units into Asia, into Europe and conduct, you know, two, three day workshop. And we would present ourselves as Coca-Cola designers, the facilitator of those workshops. So workshops go on all the time, but maybe it's also facilitation. How are we going to run the workshop and who do we invite? So part of that was us trying to sort of penetrate the organization slowly but surely, but also at the same time, you know, educate the organization in new ways of working, bring new people into the room, and all of a sudden then, you know, teaching them some of our methodologies uh, with a view that they could run a workshop next time and they could, you know, it, you know steer it themselves so that, you know, again, the, the multiplying effect, but it, but it wasn't a grand kind of like, you know, turn on a light switch and everybody's moving into human-centered design overnight. Yeah. Um, no, it was, uh, you know, and, and actually, so ground up from, from brand teams uh, uh, who do the, you know, kind of product and, and, and strategy work to top, from top to top down. So C-suite conversations, trying to really speak to our CMO and CEO at the time and really kind of like, you know, educate them around the power of this way of thinking across the organization, across the culture. So it's no longer, we don't, you know, I think when I arrived, the, the Coca-Cola design was effectively a packaging team. Um, when, I, when I left, I was glad to see that we were, we, we were involved in the conversations at the very start of innovation, R&D, product design, culture, uh, marketing, sure, packaging, absolutely. But, you know, content creation, um, so the design team then was a much more holistic uh, group of, it was a way of being rather than a, a packaging uh, label department, which I saw it when I arrived. Ryan, you better jump in, otherwise I'm going to keep. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm, this is like super interesting. I didn't, the scope of what you did is like uh, really impressive. Um, you did mention that you were actually involved. I, I know I don't want to go too much into the, the the products and cans, but I do think it's kind of relatable. I was just curious if there's a can design that you particularly like remember or like, you know, like that you thought was pretty cool. Cause I would love to show a visual to the group. Cause I think like we've seen these cans over the years. So it, I do think it's, we have the opportunity right now to like hear the story behind it. Um, again, I know that we're talking, but I do want to, it would be awesome if we could just like talk about one of the cans that you were particularly proud of. I can give you two. Uh, you can choose the Love Can or Star Wars. But I, I'll, I'll Google both of them. But the Love Can for me. So this is uh, a request that came into Global Design. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. That's where we were. That's where we we're based. And it was from the Australia Coca-Cola Business Unit in 2017, I believe. Uh, the country was going to vote for same-sex marriage, and many brands were coming out in support. And it was like hashtag say yes. And that was kind of like a, a, a national uh, vote. And Coca-Cola wanted to create a can in support of, of, of this movement and, and, and voting and saying yes. 
So the business unit had created the cannon. You know, it had the typeface that you may have seen your name on a, on a bottle or, you know, MVP and Santa. That's kind of the Coca-Cola uh, kind of typeface called the U font. And it, and it just said love. And it was fine. It didn't break any brand standard rules, but uh, it came up to global design. And I just felt we could go further with this. But we, they wanted to be market in 10 days. So we started to sketch uh, using the Coca-Cola script. There we go. Um, and the Coca-Cola Spencerian script has never been allowed to be used uh, for another word. Uh, aside from T-shirts on Canal Street or, you know, the black market and all that fun stuff. Uh, but in terms of officially. And so we sketched out the word love and we took it to our, um, our legal counsel. At first it was rejected. The clock was ticking. But for me, the pitch was, you know, this is a universal word. It reflects the values of our brand and humanity. It will still be a powerful word in a hundred and thousand years, uh, we hope. And, and so it's not going away. So if, if, if it wasn't, and it's probably the most used uh, word in, in the Beatles catalog, but if it wasn't that word, if it wouldn't, it's not a trend word. And so we sketched that out on a whiteboard. Um, we crafted it with a, a, a direct a, a typographer. Uh, we didn't go through an agency, we went straight to the typographer. We drew it up, we shipped it, and 11 days later, it was in the, the consumer's hand uh, in a can, drinking a Coke with uh, love. So for us, that was, that was everything. That was uh, thinking completely out of our comfort zone, uh, agility, uh, tapping into talent, working with a business unit from Global, receiving kind of like council approval in a whole new, and then, and then the consumer's like, you know, pulling the ring on the can, you know, and hopefully enjoying a, a Coca-Cola down in Australia and, uh, and for a great cause, for a great movement. So they had reason behind it and it had, it had a soul. So for me, that's uh, sort of ticking all the boxes of a, of a great project at speed. Excellent. Um, I'm uh, conscious of time and we would love to go for more um, Coke related stories maybe we'll have to get you back on just and just get you to talk about the different cans and how you go about designing them um but what are you doing now then so what is the the, the projects that you're working on at the moment no 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 so after my, yeah after my five years and i really thoroughly enjoyed my five years at coke but you know i i think my in my dna after attic for 25 years I, i'm an entrepreneur i like that level of risk when hr presented me here's where you're going to be in three years i was like okay i'm scared I, I don't like that level of, um, you know, kind of uh, knowing, if I'm honest. So, and, and I felt that it was possibly uh, time to go. Things were changing. What I realized wasn't changing was that agency model. That agency model felt the same. And for me, the clients were looking for new ways of working, ways that we were working in other corporations. And whether, whether you're a, a kind of startup or a unicorn or an established legacy brand like Coke, you know, life wasn't so easy uh, out there. And so they have to look for new ways. And so I felt, is there a new creative model that's less of an agency, less of a brick and mortar, doesn't have a cool studio in London or Brooklyn or wherever in the world, um, and is more of a kind of community, more of a platform, um, you know, and, and ultimately I called it, I called it known unknown to give the unknown designers an opportunity to work on known brands. Is to really, going back to my, the noise books, or, or the way we worked at, at, at Coca-Cola. It was really just an extension of that, but now with technology, 
helping us even further than where we were in the 80s, 90s, and, and even five or 10 years ago. So in 2019, uh, I, I launched Known Unknown, and I, I'd pitch it to the odd client, and they'd said, like, this is great, James, you know, uh, uh, where's your studio? Um, you know, can we come and see you guys? And uh, I'm like, I, we don't have a studio, we're remote, 100% distributed. They're like, what does that mean? Uh, and so I spent 2019 explaining what remote work would, could look like. That conversation went away in 2020. I was never asked that question ever again. Um, so here we all are now in that world. And so for yeah. me, really, it's about finding the best talent in the world. I officially launched that, as you can see there, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the website to invite. Because in the first year, it was James and his friends. And then, you know, I, inv I invited and launched this website. And I was excited in June this year when we launched it. Uh, we had 20 members sign up. Uh, by the end of the first week, but now we're almost 5,000 uh, members from, from over 100 countries. Um, our oldest is 87, our youngest is 18. Um, from all creative disciplines, all, all diverse backgrounds, um, really giving them an opportunity to work on known brands. Um, you know, coming together for sprints, coming together for day. You know, day. Um, we launched our own crypto token, I reward them, um, that's called the known unknown design operating system, but the coin is called Kudos. And, and if we see conversations and people helping other designers, we'll, we'll airdrop them some Kudos to say thank you. And they can hold the coin or they can, they can go buy themselves a pizza. But the point is really we're looking for new ways of working. Uh, we're tapping into the community for brand identity, for NFT designs. Um, so really, you know, rather than turning around to a studio, like my, in my grandmother's attic, um, we're turning around to a community and, uh, and, and, and identifying who's most, the most suitable, who's available, who's excited for this brief. And, 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 and in the meantime, they're helping each other. They're exchanging each, they're mentoring. So a little bit of that Prince's Trust, um, but they're, they're, they're starting to come together and, uh, and, and grow, grow their own professional careers uh, collectively. Just for our podcast listeners, what's the website address? Uh, the website address is uh, knownunknown.co. That's where you sign up. That'll push you through to our community. And, uh, and if anyone's interested in uh, Kudos, uh, our, our crypto coin, you'd go to rally.io and just put in there Kudos. Perfect. Irene um, Ryan, would you like to wrap up or do you have any last questions? Guys, uh, I'd like to also say thanks. This has been great. Just an opportunity to share a few stories, connect with you guys and uh, and your audience. So much appreciated. Now, I mean, I, I just again thinking, James. I almost felt, were you inspired by punk rock by at all? Because it does. There is an element of punk rock esque. Just do it yourself. Don't wait for anything throughout your whole career. Plus, um, Prince's trust. I, I mean, I'm, I, again, maybe I'm I'm reading too much, but I do feel that there is a do it yourself model that seems to have followed you throughout your own career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that one. I, I have a whole chapter on on my my the influence of punk on me beyond the music, but the creative expression, uh, yeah. the 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 innovation, and so yeah, that in itself as a young man was hugely inspiring for me. Known unknown seems like it's such an awesome opportunity. It really speaks to the the roots and how you were kind of brought up in the design community and paying it forward. So, um, it's a really inspirational. Uh, platform. So we'll definitely link it in the show notes and check it out. Um, but yeah, thanks James again for attending. This was an awesome interview. 
Um, thanks everyone for joining the Design Huddle Podcast. Uh, like, subscribe, share this episode with your your friends, and we will catch you on the next episode of Design Huddle. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Design Huddle. The opinions expressed are solely our own and do not express the views or opinions of our employer.